All right, I want to start by uh, telling a story that happens in Acts 3 and 4, okay? So get yourselves into a, a story here in mode, whether it's uh, closing your eyes or whatever you do to best hear a story. Here's what goes down. John and Peter, fresh on the exhilaration that comes from Pentecost, are still living in Jerusalem, and they decide to keep with the traditional way of their religion, the religion they've come from, and go up to the temple to pray at three in the afternoon. And on the way up there, they pass through what's called the Beautiful Gate. And we're not sure which gate that is, but probably one that looked beautiful, because they're not, and none of them are called the Beautiful Gate anymore. So they, they walk through this beautiful gate, and the, and the suffice to say, the gate is important because of the person they meet there. There's this man, he's over 40, and he sits there every single day, because if you're begging and you're wanting money, a good place to do it is just outside of a place that people go to pray. Because on the way to pray, hopefully, they're inclined to be a little more generous. And so this is proven true enough that every single day this guy is set by people that love him at the beautiful gate. As John and Peter come along, they see the man. The man that they've seen day in and day out. The man that everybody's seen day in and day out. And he looks at them and he asks them for money. It's not an unusual thing. It happens day in and day out. But on this day, Something wells up inside of Peter where he turns to the man and he says, Money I don't have, but what I do I will give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. We read it like this. No big deal. Heard that one. Get up and walk. Okay, picture you're, you're walking with a crowd of folks in a routine that you've done over and over and over, seeing a man you've seen over and over and over that you, that you couldn't ever imagine being set free from whatever is going on in his body, and then having within you the wherewithal to say something like that, and then seeing him get up and walk. As you might imagine, the people that witness this uh, can't help but notice something's different on this day. And so a throng of people surround Peter and John, and they move from the beautiful gate to Solomon's colonnade, this kind of covered portico area on the Temple Mount. And, and Peter notices that he has a crowd. And so in typical fashion, this new Peter that we see, this guy who's, who's operating in a totally different way, sees it as an opportunity for a little sermon. And so he decides to, rather than draw attention to himself, he basically says, what are you so surprised about, you Israelites? Don't come and worship me. This is evidence that the person who I spoke in the name of is a person worth paying attention to. And he goes on to say, you remember him, right? The one that you, that you crucified. The one that came and, and, and only did things that were meant for the good of the people that you crucified. Remember him? And you hear this passion and almost probably anger in Peter's voice. And he gives this compelling sort of speech to this group of people that have just witnessed something that they never would have imagined in millions of years. 
And it says a whole bunch of people start believing that the things that he's saying are the right way to see reality. We flip the page into the fourth chapter, and it's getting on in the day. So this started at three. It's probably getting dark around six. So it's kind of a long speech. Um, but it's getting on in the day, and the crowd is big enough that the people that are sort of monitoring the temple courts, the, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, the religious rule keepers of the day, they, they are concerned. There's a crowd gathering that has nothing to do with them. That's probably one of the reasons they're concerned. But they're also hearing that the way that they're talking about it is that this Jesus that they were responsible for crucifying has been risen from the dead. Which they don't even believe in. The Sadducees in particular pride themselves on saying that's bunk science. We don't believe that. We don't have nothing to do with that. And so they're resistant on a couple fronts. One, they're being kind of undermined. And two, they're being undermined about the thing that they care about the most. And so like good, controlling Sanhedrin folks do, they grab Peter and John and throw them in jail. They're like, it's too late to deal with this today. We got stuff tonight. Let's just put them in jail. We'll deal with them tomorrow. You know? Like you do. The next day, they appear before the Sanhedrin, the court that's made up of scribes, high priests, Sadducees, and Pharisees, the religious elite. And they drag John and Peter out there before them, and they say, by what name do you do this? By what name do you bring healing to this person? And they say this, if it's for an act of kindness, for an act of kindness, that you're pulling us in front of this court for making a guy who couldn't walk able to walk, then know this. It's in the name of Jesus that this healing happened. And we're not afraid to say it. It doesn't say it quite that way. But that's certainly the attitude. And so then the Sadducees, you know, they're like, oh my goodness, like the guy standing here is kind of undeniable. This is awkward. Um, but, you know, we got to shut these guys up. And so they kind of have like this sort of side meeting. And they're like, what do we do? Because they're fired up, these guys. And they've got some evidence that something actually happened. So they just threaten them. They're like, okay, let's go back to the old 101 of being, this, you know, the Sanhedrin. Let's just threaten them, scare them a bit. And their response is, if you want to shut us up for seeing God do a miraculous work in this man... You judge whether it's better for us to listen to God or listen to you. They're like, oh, man, this is going to be bad. <laughs> they leave. They go back to their community. They ramp up their prayers together. And they say, we need more boldness because we are really dealing with some corruption here. And then the chapter ends saying that they had unity in the church unlike ever before. That they were selling things to provide so that no one was in need. That they were spending tons of time together. And you kind of get this second picture of the one we talked about in Acts 2. Where they have everything in common and they're really working well together. So the question I want to ask this morning. You remember we did the timeline thing last week if you weren't here. Very quickly. 
um, Passover, when the crucifixion happened, April, it's a feast every single year. Seven weeks later, the week of weeks, Pentecost, meaning 50 days, so Penta, 50, 50 days after Passover is Pentecost, and that's when the Holy Spirit, mag magnificent indwelling of the Holy Spirit situation starts. Okay? 50 days later. So right after that is when this is happening. In the same year. How in the world does the guy who at Passover denied Jesus so radically for the same sort of control and contempt and fear less than six months later take on the Sanhedrin with all this boldness? That's my question. I'm going to ask Epiphany to come and interrupt what I'm saying with a version of her story where there was life before, something happened, and life after. So can we give Epiphany a little hoorah as she goes? So uh, Epiphany didn't know when she was going to be talking, so we sandwiched her in the middle of my talk. So thank you for being fine with that. My story, my relationship with Jesus. Um, so, way back, um, I'm just going to throw you guys right in there. Um, my father passed away when I was three years old. My family was living in Edmonton at the time. And we were much closer to his side of the family. And when he passed away, my mom moved my sisters and I back out to D.C. because that's where her side of the family was. And then she went off to work. And it was basically just like my sisters and I. And we were just like kind of pets around and do whatever. And we ended up actually getting invited out to church. And so I grew up going to church. Like my family's not Christian, but I grew up going to church. We got really tapped in um, doing like Sunday school and youth group and Awanas on Thursdays and really involved and I developed a relationship with God and got baptized and that was all well and great and awesome and I really enjoyed spending time in church. Um, however, like I had a lot of things happening, lots going on on a personal level, just like inside and um, didn't really have like a lot of knowledge of God's character. Like I had a relationship, but I didn't have like a, a firm foundation. Like I was basically just going to church and relying on what I was hearing in church. And you always hear like, God's good, God's love, God's strong, God's got this plan for you, like God's gonna protect you. And then I was sexually assaulted. And so when that happened, I really started to question things. I'm like, what like how how could God let that happen? And so yeah, things things were a little bit rocky after that, and I was quite young. And then the time came where my parents were like, "You need to get a job." Um, 
start working. And I didn't want to just start working at like McDonald's or anything like that. I wanted a job I would actually really enjoy. And so I got a job working in floral. And that's like a nine to five through the week kind of job. And the only days that I was available for that was the weekends. So that pretty much put an end to me going to church. And I went off and I just kind of started doing my own thing and always seeking for more, always seeking for answers, always trying to find like the how and the why and understand things. Because um, I've had a lot of different things happen to me, experienced a lot of different things, and just trying to gain some realm of understanding. And so I went off and ventured into the world and tried all that the world had to give me. And as y'all can imagine, that's not always a good place to be. Um, I really struggled with like eating disorders, and I struggled with. Um, drug abuse and I had been through my young adult life a string of just toxic and abusive relationships and yeah really just at that point like searching for movement and searching for peace wherever wherever I could possibly find it and that got me into like knowing that I never stopped believing in God, but um, I definitely was distancing myself from like even like the church and that sort of thing. Um, but knowing that there's more out there and just like seeking, and what I found very much was like the new age type thing. And I got very involved in that. Um, I was doing all kinds of things, all kinds of things, from like crystal healing and tarot cards, oracle cards, Reiki, shamanic healing ceremonies, all that stuff. And as well as just going off and living my life and trying to have a good time and find some semblance of peace, I would find answers to little things here and there. And it's almost like I was being drawn deeper. Um, <clears throat> And yeah, I was, <laughs> I got to a point in my life, this would have been in early 2019, actually. Um, and I was in my car and I was on my way to work and all of these things just kept bubbling up, kept bubbling up, kept bubbling up. <clears throat> and I just had like a freak out moment of like, why? Why? Why am I still dealing with these things? Like, I have done everything that I possibly know to do to deal with these things from conventional counseling and therapy to my own trying to satiate these needs that I have. And nothing was working. Nothing was working. It just would not. Everything that I was dealing with just, like, there was no subsiding. It's like it was just getting more and more intense. And so I actually, in that moment, <laughs> I cried out to God. I'm like, God, if you can help me, help me. 
and then it just, the light turned green and I went off to work. And it wasn't the next day, the day after I was at work. And I was finishing my shift and um, I had one last table. I went up to this table and I got to talking to them and um, took their drink order, took their food order, that sort of thing. Went back to the machine. I was working as a server at the time. Um, went back to the machine, punched in their order, grabbed their drinks, went back to their table. And I got to talking to them some more. And it's a guy and a girl. And this guy shares this vision that he has with me. And immediately my ears perk up. I'm like, oh, this is my kind of conversation. These are my kind of people. <laughs> and um, he shares this vision that he has with me. And it really, really resonated with me. And then he asked me point blank. He's like, are you struggling with this, this, and this? And I'm like, yeah, I am actually. And he's like, do you want help? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I do actually. That would be great. Um, he's like, okay. Um, yeah, even if you decide you don't want our help, like we want to be your friends. So he got his girlfriend to get my contact information. And then we made plans to hang out the next day. And then he asked if he can pray for me. And he did pray for me right then and there. And at the time, I didn't realize um, what had happened, but some things, like he prayed, and some things lifted off of me right then and there. And then the next day, um, I went to hang out with them in the early afternoon. And we're just sitting around talking, kind of getting to know them, getting to know their stories. And, um, they're like, yeah, we've got this meeting happening tonight. We'd love it if you could come. And I said, yeah, I would love to come. Unfortunately, I'm supposed to work, though. And then a little bit more time passes, maybe like 15, 30 minutes. I check my phone. My manager messages me, and he's like, hey, I don't normally do this, but I overscheduled for tonight, so I'm going to call you off. And I shared that with them, and they're like, so you can come then? I'm like, yeah, I can come. That'll be great. And um, I ended up coming in there. They're just like, do you want more prayer? And I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do it. What I did not know is that they had a deliverance ministry. And so their idea with prayer was deliverance. But in that moment of actually like going through deliverance, <laughs> the things that I was experiencing. And I'm just like, that's amazing. That's absolutely amazing. But I was left with one question, and that question was, why Jesus? Why, why does the enemy answer to the name of Jesus? And, you know, now that I knew that the enemy was real, why does he answer to the name of Jesus? And so I went headlong after Jesus 
after that, like just trying to gain more understanding and yeah, just like why. And I actually, the friends that I was with, the next day they came over to my house. We actually went through my house and we had a bonfire. We cleared everything out and it was just amazing, absolutely amazing. And yeah, that, that sense of peace that I had been searching for that was always so fleeting came into me that day, like after deliverance, and it's never left. And yeah, I've just been going after them ever since. Lots more stories of that. Yeah. It takes a lot of courage to do that. Um, really appreciated epiphany. And you just, I always say when someone can talk about the things that were the hardest in their struggles openly, you can tell that there's been a lot of healing and movement in them. And so we see that for sure in what you were saying. So yeah, if you if you appreciated what Epiphany was saying, I hope you will tell her uh, at some point. Maybe we don't all like wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate how open you are with us. As we think about what uh, Peter's story and Epiphany's story have in common, we pray that it would shock us that we can see it in all our stories. And we pray that it would inspire us to see other stories be impacted in similar ways. In the name of Jesus, amen. So the question that I had was what in the world happened that was substantive enough in Peter in those few months that he could go from tucking his tail between his legs denying Jesus three times when he was so adamant that he wouldn't do that. You know, so adamant. I'm the one that's going to be there. I'll cut the ear off. All the stories we think back, he, if anybody was going to do it, it was going to be him. And then when the pressure arrived, he cracked. Well, the pressure arrived again. And like, what, what hasn't changed? Let's start there. Okay, so the, the contempt is the same. They're sneering at Peter, like this uneducated, he's not a scribe, he's not a chief priest, he's not a Pharisee, he's not a Sadducee, what right does he have to talk to us? So the contempt of like, you're inferior, God can't work through you, God doesn't care about you, we're the ones that hold the power. The contempt was the same, the control was the same, he knew that they had the ability to arrest him, to take him uh, to jail. He spent the night in jail. He knew how it played out for Jesus. And he knew that there had been no shift in like uh, what authority the Sanhedrin had. So the contempt and the control, the threat was the same. You know, at that time, he could have, he could have been... When he, if he didn't say he was with Jesus because he was worried of the threat, right? He was worried that if he's associated, then he's heading with him. So the threat was the same, the contempt, the control, all the same. But Peter was not the same. Something radical had changed in him 
in less than a year. And what's, what's so cool about a character study of a person like Peter is that he, you get to start to hear him describe a message that gives us the answer to what changed in him. And so it's like Inception, you know, where we're like, we're hearing what happened to him because he's telling other people it can happen to them. And so you start to see, even in the fact that he's telling people the story that happened to him, he's been shifted in what matters to him because he's no longer just about him, but now his story is for others. Incidentally, we saw that happen just moments ago with Epiphany. The story isn't just about Epiphany anymore. The point of sharing it is for others. And so what we can do is we can look at the things that Peter likes to talk about, and we can learn some things from how he talks about his own experience that tell us what happened. And what we notice is there's four kind of nuggets that are in all of his speeches. And I'll go through them kind of quickly here, okay? First one is he talks about who Jesus was. So he had a front row seat, right from like the boat scenes to walking through the Holy Land with Jesus. He had a front row seat. He saw things that he couldn't explain away. He couldn't explain away some of the things that he saw. And so they were with him forever. Enough that he had conjured up some courage to say, I will never deny you, Jesus. But for whatever reason, just seeing the life of Jesus wasn't enough to take him through those pressure moments. It wasn't what he needed. And so the, the second thing he goes to in all of his speeches, and a lot, of the, a lot of the early church sermons talk about the heinousness of crucifying somebody who's trying to do something good. It's like, it's not just my friend got hung up on a cross, but the Messiah, the one that God had sent to us to solve things. What makes it heinous is that there was no reason for it. That's what makes it so awful and so heinous. And this is something that comes up in all the speeches, that you crucified him for no reason. Yeah, um, he, and he jumps to that opportunity in his speeches. He goes, oh, well, you're, you're impressed by this healing? Well, let's talk about the fact that it's in the name of the person you crucified. You know, it's on the tip of his tongue. Because it was an atrocity. And it was an atrocity on a personal level and on a cosmic level. His personal connection to the story. And then also over time, he started to get a much bigger picture of what was happening in that heinous act. So then he goes to the next one. You know, kind of another big event. The resurrection. So he says, but vindication against you guys, against us guys. Jesus, back to life. And so we see, we've got the life of Jesus, then the heinous death of Jesus, then this incredible story of vindication that despite the fact that you corrupt, that we corrupt folks have such a nasty stain and curse inside of us that we would sort of co-sign or be proxy to this heinous act. Despite that, life was so palpable in Jesus that death, 
couldn't hold him down. And then Peter, after the experience at Pentecost, adds one more piece. And that is, and don't celebrate me here, folks. Don't celebrate me as the reason the, the man at the beautiful gate is now walking. I am now a channel of power that God has given to me. And so we see in his sermons that a pretty similar big four. Life of Jesus, incredible miracle worker, teacher, tons of authority, the author of life himself. I got to follow him. But then we, in our heinousness, did something unthinkable to hurt a revolutionary who only wants what's best, even at that level. Heinous. But then to imagine that it's God's work of redeeming and restoring creation and then us doing it. Much worse on a cosmic level. But vindication. And then finally, not just vindication so we can be like, well, that was quite a time in history. But also an invitation to partner in powerful acts that open up the big story to all of us. There's a line I want to put up from Acts chapter 4. Listen to this line. And when you hear it, have in your head the rooster crowing after three denials. Okay? When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, content, content, look at these losers. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Guess what the three denials were about? I'm not with him. No, don't associate me with him. There's too much heat there. I don't even know the man. I'm telling you, do not connect me with Jesus. This is a role reversal, where the old Peter is no more. Peter now is known for being somebody that associates himself with Jesus. What in the world has shifted inside him that he wants to be known now as the person that if you're going to crucify the next guy, pick me, he's almost saying. Oh, and by the way, look at my friend here. He was crippled this morning. So you're going to have to sort that out. And by the way, 5,000 people believe in what we're saying because you heinous people crucified. And so you see this anger that turns into this righteous indignation with how messed up we are as human beings. How messed up we are, this, this curse that we carry, this selfishness that we're born with that's just in us, that expresses itself in so many different ways. So if you're like me, sometimes... Uh, we have been around this story enough that it starts to just kind of feel like history and, you know, oh, yeah, I remember that part. But it doesn't necessarily grip us. And it's like, maybe if we take those four things, I don't really connect that much with the life of Jesus. Like, yeah, they're nice stories. And there's a few tidbits in there that might help me. And the, and the crucifixion thing, I mean, I've seen it enough, I've heard it, talked about it enough that it doesn't really bother me anymore. It's like, and I'm talking about like, in your private thought life here, where it's like, I, yeah, it's, I get that it's bad, but 
I don't feel a real, doesn't feel that rough to me anymore. And, or, you know, the resurrection thing, like, yes, life, that's, that's kind of what we pride ourselves on in our faith, that Jesus was, but I don't personally connect. It doesn't feel transformative in any way. And I certainly don't feel this power thing that was described in the after Am I the only one that sometimes falls into a place where the story just doesn't necessarily have legs in my life these days? I asked if I'm the only one and I saw people nodding. You mean to say, this means I'm the only one. I don't think I am. Let's track back through what shifted in Peter. Okay, so at the crucifixion piece, he's just denied Jesus. He's just said he wouldn't. He said he wouldn't do it. He did it. He has proven that selfishness or self-preservation, which is a which is an important piece that we all have, self-preservation, has has gone a little too far into selfishness, where it's like I'm more concerned about self preservation than what's right and good and true. And that's, I think, a little tip for us. I'm more concerned sometimes with myself. I am the hero of my own story so much so that this selfishness runs my life more than the idea of uh, what does it look like, what's happened in me, what does it look like to take the nuggets of that the way Epiphany did this morning and say, I have to I have to give God glory and credit for the shift from what I was to what I am. And the crucifixion thing that he talks about in his sermons, Peter, is our invitation to die to that kind of cursed way of living. It's to die to the, the idea that we have to live a self-preservation mentality to the point where we're selfish. And this expresses itself in so many different ways. And sometimes when people say, like, sin, I find selfishness is a pretty great synonym. And it really gets maybe more to the point of some of the ways that we're seeing it in our lives. That we're selfish. That we're so focused on ourselves. Peter was self-preserved when the rooster crowed. When they said, this fool is with Jesus, Self-preservation had left, and something new was there, which I think speaks to the next one. Remember, so it's life of Jesus, crucifixion, resurrection, new life. I love how apologists will sometimes say that like, the, the best proof that this happened is how the people that were the closest to Jesus responded after. The fact that Peter would stand in front of the people that just murdered Jesus and say the things that Jesus got murdered for is a pretty strong evidence that he was convinced that something had radically happened in the resurrection. Add to that the story we see at the end of John where Peter's on the beach. Remember that one? Where Peter's on the beach making fish with Jesus. Jesus looks at him and he says, do you love my, my sheep, my lambs, my sheep? Forget the order. But the point is... He's restoring him. New life is the picture of restoration, of restoration, that Peter's restored. So we're invited in the same trajectory. Let's get the last one. Then Peter waits from, from 
Passover to Pentecost, waits and receives this new power to step into a new representation of those things. Okay, so we're invited to die to the curse, to say, I don't want to live under that spell anymore. I don't want to live always worried about how I'm preserved or how I'm promoted or all about me, me, me. And so then the second piece, and, and so I want to receive, a, I want to kind of die to that way of living. And that's how scripture describes it, isn't it? That I'm going to die to the old way. And I'm going to receive a new way, a new life. And we see it happen in Peter. He's a different person. And it's like six months maybe. Different person. Same circumstances. Very similar anyway. And then the invitation that follows is, but to sustain it. To, to not just see it as something that happened in ancient history. Years ago, I had this moment with Jesus. To sustain a new way of living that isn't selfish. We have the opportunity to receive a power download that shifts our mentality from selfishness to selflessness. And so I think what happened in Peter is he got, something got killed the day that he denied Jesus. It died in him when the rooster crowed. Enough that he went out and wept. He let go of a version of himself that was so selfish and he didn't even know it. And then something happened on the beach when he saw Jesus alive again. That restoration face to face for him. How wonderful. How, how great. Jesus restores and says those three, those three things he said. Resolved. And then he waited. And he received something that would be the source of how he operated from that point forward. So can you guess how I'm inviting us to imagine our own lives these days? The big four of the, the Peter sermon, his, his go-to sermon. The life of Jesus. Is there something inspiring to you about a man, about a person, that was able to live without the effects of the human curse? That's the big story. There's a little story of who Jesus was. But this is a human being living apart from the human predicament. And if you want to sub in another way to say it, a human being who wasn't selfish. That's the first question. Does that grab onto you? Is there something about the person of Jesus, the way he operated, the way he gave his life away, the way that he was with people, the way that he pushed against boundaries that needed to be challenged because they were corrupt or they were um, abusive? Does that grab you? Or maybe it's an event in your world. Maybe it's something that needs some death. That it already stinks like death anyway, so might as well put a nail in it. Maybe it's this invitation that the things that have been some of our worst moments, some of the things that were the most life-robbing, like Epiphany was explaining, become the venue where he speaks new life. Or maybe you've experienced the new life, but it's like, eh, you know, it's not really affecting things. 
Maybe there's an invitation to wait and to invite God's Spirit to remind you of what you've died to, to remind you of what's been given as new life, to knock down the curse of selfishness when it rears its ugly head, and to give you power to do it. We thank you, Lord, for this story. We thank you that it's a mini-story, it's a small Peter and Jesus story on the one hand, and then it's, that's like a microcosm to this human story of how we find ourselves in situations of deep selfishness that, that bring out the worst in us, where we're so concerned with what's happening in our own story that we don't see the things around us. And God help us, we see it happening even in the way we think about our faith that we're so concerned with our own story that we don't get, or we haven't matured to the point of recognizing that we are meant to share it, that we're meant to pass on the wonderful things you've passed on to us. And so we pray that this morning, um, one of the four would strike each of us. In fact, as we think of it, it we, I invite you, God, to show us which of the four the life of Jesus, this, this inspirational three years of seeing someone that isn't stained by selfishness and what happens as Jesus operates among hurting folks. Or the death, the death like Peter died in the rooster crow, kind of where we say if we want the new life, we've got to say goodbye to the old one. We pray that if, if we're, we're experiencing that in the room here today, how do we say goodbye to the stains that keep dragging us down? How do we put a nail in them? Knowing that without a death, we can't experience that newness that we see in people like Peter, or that ultimately we see in you, Jesus, as you step through death into a deeper, more whole, more long-lasting version of life. And then finally, God, we, we thank you for the gift of your spirit that invites us to take the lessons from the death and the new life and enact them in the way that we live. And so as we think about where we're at today, as we let that story bump up against our own, as we let Epiphany's story bump up against our own, give us pause. to listen to what you want to say. Let's just take 30 seconds to think through the things we've been talking about and do a little personal inventory.